0: there comes a point in chanting where it takes over everything so that you're starting to have this incredible flow of sight, sound, taste, uh, feelings. Everything is channeled into this chanting. And if you're with a whole bunch of other people, then you also have this great opportunity to really connect with people on a very deep level that doesn't involve analyzing your likes and dislikes of people, but that you're sitting in a room together and this tremendous vibration of energy and sound is carrying you and uniting you together. And I think there's a lot to say about uh, that sound. I'm one of these people that believes in this incredible power of sound to really transform things and sometimes I feel that saying certain things and putting certain sounds out into the environment changes that environment.
1: Myoke Kane Barrett Shonen first encountered Buddhism when the mother of one of her friends brought her to a Soka Gakkai meeting in 1963. Myoke's mother told her not to join anything, but she was so moved by the beauty of the chanting, she's been practicing the Lotus Sutra ever since. She left Soka Gakkai for Nichiren Shu in the late 1990s, and by 2002 had begun training to become a priest. Miyoke was fully ordained and assigned as head priest and guiding teacher to the Nichiren Buddhist Sangha of Texas in Houston, also known as Myokinji Temple, in 2007. The daughter of an African-American father and a Japanese mother, Miyoke is the first woman of African-American and Japanese descent and is the only Western woman to be ordained as a priest within the worldwide Nichiren order. Myoke has active prison and hospice ministries and sought to dismantle walls of prejudice, fear, and ignorance by fostering opportunities for connection, understanding, and healing. Myoke Shonen is currently Bishop of the Nichiren Shu Order of North America. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit org. I'm wondering if we can begin with why. Why, at 13, did you decide this was really something for you?
0: I think part of it was that I was on a spiritual quest uh, because of identity issues because I always felt like I might be in the wrong family or something like that. Um, And there was just not a lot of support for uh, mixed ethnic children. And people were always saying, well, which one do you belong to, or you have to choose one. So that was quite an issue. Uh, And I was really actually quite fascinated when I was younger by reading the Bible and going to church and learning as much as I could about spirituality. But I couldn't get any answers. Uh, I was always taught or told, you know, you just have to believe it. We don't question anything. Just do what the book tells you. Mm. So that didn't sit well with me. So I think I was pretty ripe for exploring something different. And what made uh, Nutrin practice, or the Lotus Sutra practice, So appealing was, um, there was some kind of memory which I didn't find out about until I started training for the priesthood, Uh, kind of a a memory from my uh, childhood because I was born in Japan and my mother's family is a Nitrin Shu family. So I'm sure I heard it when I was very young, uh, from the time I was born, and also the smell of incense was a very powerful memory that I had that I didn't know where it came from for a long time, but all of those things kind of connected. So there was a lot, I think, that went into that feeling of being at home uh, when I met Nichiren or Lotus Sutra Buddhism. And um, also, I think I was quite enamored back then of uh, service, you know, spiritual service because of. A couple of movies I watched as a kid, so it was something that I had thought about for a long time.
1: Now, when you went to that first service, uh, your mother told you not to join, Uh but this had been part of her life. And uh, what do you think she was trying to 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 keep you from? Or what? What
0: was (laughs) that? Was I'm not sure. Uh, My mom never talked about. Uh, religion, um, or you know, what her family did, or anything like that, or why she was so anti religion, and I still don't know why. Um, uh, it's just that she did, would always say, I'm, I'm not going to a temple, I'm not going to a meeting. She would go to church, however, because mm. she was in love with gospel music, she <laughs> loved gospel music,
2: It's <laughs> not alone.
0: And still to this day, we'll go to church just for the music. Oh, wow. But she did actually come to my graduation and final ordination ceremony in the head temple. So that was quite an accomplishment to get her there.
1: Wow. When I was thinking about this interview and I was reading some of of what you've written, I realized that I have this implicit bias right in the name of the show, Sit, Breathe, Bow. Mhm and I love to chant i i chanting is one of my favorites, and I, the name didn't even make it you know chanting didn't even make it into the name and I think part of that is there you know I was operating on this sort of unconscious bias that uh, people in the West uh, think of Buddhism as this sitting silent meditation um yeah and i, th- I th- you've even written about being. Confronted in some places where uh, the authenticity of your practice was called into question.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: because of you know it's a chanting practice versus a sitting practice, or right, and uh, which is really striking because I I mean ch- chanting is such a powerful practice for people. Um, exactly. So I'm wondering if you can, for those who are unfamiliar with chanting practice wondering if you can you know, help them understand or give them a little insight onto you know, what, what, what that practice can do for them.
0: I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I'm still thinking about it. One of the first things I tell people is that they have to also consider how the Dharma was transmitted in the past mm-hmm. during the Buddhist time, because they didn't use paper, or as I understand it, did not have a writing system. I could be wrong, but I think much like uh, traditional societies in various parts of the world, which use storytellers and griots to carry history. And the Dharma was transmitted uh, vocally. They chanted it together to make sure they had it correct so that they can then go out and share it with others. So it's not unusual to imagine why the practice grew and why it translated to uh, different parts of the world as a chanting practice, because it was always there from the very beginning. The other beauty of chanting is that, or there's several different ones, it's a form of meditation that allows you to focus on something else while at the same time allowing your body and all of your senses to be engaged. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point in chanting where it takes over everything so that you're starting to have this incredible flow of sight, sound, taste, uh, feelings, everything is channeled into this chanting. And if you're with a whole bunch of other people then you also have this great opportunity to really connect with people on a very deep level that doesn't involve uh, analyzing your likes and dislikes of people, but that you're sitting in a room together and this tremendous vibration of energy and sound is carrying you and uniting you together. And I think there's a lot to say about uh, that sound. I'm one of these people that believes in this incredible power of sound to really transform things. And sometimes I feel that saying certain things and putting certain sounds out into the environment changes that environment. And I feel that so deeply sometimes when I'm chanting with people that the very molecules of air are affected, the way the light uh, moves through the air are affected. So that there's a sense of, or a quality of stillness that comes about. Mm -hmm. And so that I know I've left my body or that I don't have a body Mm -hmm. because there's no barrier between me and everything else simply by uh, transporting along that sound or using that sound wave. I mean, I could go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I just remember when I was very young uh, in in a study cubicle at school one time, and it was late at night, and for the first time, I could hear the sound. I I was chanting a little bit to myself while I was studying, but I could hear somehow the sound of other voices chanting, and I realized in that instant. That as long as I was chanting, I would never ever be alone because somewhere in the universe, someone else was chanting. Mm. And that I could always imagine that I was chanting with you know enormous amounts of people. And, you know, participating, as the Buddha said in the Lotus Sutra, in a ceremony that was continuously ongoing and never ceasing, that we all can join it at any time. And that was a great source of comfort.
1: I was on retreat not, uh, not long ago. And I had this incredible experience while chanting. i I'd, I'd had glimpses of this before, but um, there was something about this particular retreat where all of a sudden I could feel all of the, the confidence of the world in the voices. I could feel all of the anxiety and insecurity just as as the voices are coming together, mm-hmm. um, I could feel all of that in the chanting, just as in the sound that we were making. I I was I just fell in love with it. Just fell in love with the sound of it.
0: There's a lot to be said for that sound.
1: Mm. So what do you what do you say to people who tell you that this isn't uh, part of Buddhist practice or? Uh, I'm not even sure what they really say. Uh,
0: You're not a real Buddhist.
1: You're not a real (laughs) Buddhist. They say that.
0: (laughs) Yes, they do. Uh, Someone said that to me uh, when I was on uh, a trip with uh, Sakyadita, the International Buddhist Women's Organization. And we went to India. And we were on our way up to uh, Vulture Peak or Eagle Peak. And someone said that to me. And I was a little bit outdone because yeah. I'm thinking, what are you saying? But what really put it together for me was that when we got to the top, we were riding uh, these little carts. And when we got to the top of the mountain, all you could hear was the sound of Namu myoho kyo, because <laughs> someone up there was chanting. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, we're not real, but there's stupas with that written on it. There's a peace pagoda up here. And there's a little temple where there's a, a monk chanting the Daimoku. Yeah. it's like, okay, we're not real. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite uh, earth-shattering, earth-moving, I guess you would say, that it, it just really enhanced my confidence in understanding the spread of a chanting practice.
1: Right now, you just used a word that some people were probably not familiar with, which is "daimoku." Right. right. Uh, can you say a little bit of what that is? Um,
0: okay. Well, "o" is an honorific, mm-hmm. and "daimoku" means sacred title. And so, the when we are chanting "namu myoho renge kyo," myoho renge kyo is the title of the Lotus Sutra, in Uh, the Japanese pronunciation of ancient Chinese. In Sanskrit, it is a Sadama Pundarika Sutra. So the thought is that when you chant uh, the Odaimoku, that you are chanting the entirety of the Lotus Sutra by accessing its title. Mm -hmm. Much like in the same way that um, for any person you know, that as you get to know them, there's all these things that become associated with that person's name so that when you hear the name you conjure up everything you know so in chanting the daimoku you can bring up everything you know as well about the lotus sutra
1: so you so the chanting of uh, namo myoho renge kyo that's it's almost um like a symbol for everything that's behind it yes so what does it mean to practice the Lotus Sutra?
0: Well, there are five ways to practice it. It's called to keep, uh, receive it and keep it. read, recite, copy and expound. So once you receive the Lotus Sutra through initially, everyone receives it at uh, usually the Odaimoku, uh, and to keep it and practice it, then to also read the Lotus Sutra, to also recite the Lotus Sutra, to copy it, and we have different practices that we use to copy images of the Buddha or copy the Lotus Sutra in uh, Sumi, the traditional uh, calligraphy, and then to share it with others. Keeping it is probably the most difficult part because when you're studying the Lotus Sutra in The examples that are given and the guidance that is given on how to live your best life are sometimes difficult to understand, sometimes difficult to follow through, because you have to tease out uh, the meaning. Uh, The Lotus Sutra can be one of the most difficult books to read because there's a fundamental assumption in it that you know a whole bunch before you get to it. Uh, But there are also very simple things that can keep you going. Uh, like the part where the Buddha talks about the equality of all beings and that all beings have the potential to become Buddhas. Is that chapter five? Yes, that's part of it. Uh, it's scattered throughout, uh-huh. you know, but he talks about the fact that um, all of us can become Buddhists. And that's why he appeared in the world uh-huh. to he said, I appeared in the world to so that all living beings can enter the way and quickly become Buddhists.
1: Yeah. I was looking at over it and I really got caught by chapter five where, you know, it says this, I, I see all living beings equally. I have yes. no partiality for them. There's right. not this one or that one to me. I transcend love and hatred. And what I, what a trying message for those of us right now, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, you know,
1: um, but also what a great challenge to us right now.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: You know, and you do a lot of social justice work um, and also a lot of sort of witnessing, it seems, with your, your hospice work. And I'm wondering how this, this practice of the Lotus Sutra shows up in your, you know, your work out in the world. Like how it leaves the the temple, and
0: well, yeah. So Nietzsche Shonen, the founder of our order, uh, is considered a radical, uh, possibly revolutionary person. Most of the time, you'll hear that he's a nationalist, but I'm not necessarily buying into that part of it. But he was always engaged in confronting the government and other uh, forms of religion in Japan at the time, because he believed the time was the latter age of degeneration. And that was characterized by, you know, plagues and people dying in the streets and, you know, Mongol invasions. Boy, we're having fun today in Texas. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, So he was always remonstrating with the government. He was always out in the street sharing the dharma with people and really challenging all of the social norms that were impacting people's lives. Um, Like, for example, the samurai class, you know, because they could freely walk at that time and kill anybody that bothered them, got in their way. Um, And he also spoke out against the zen practitioners and pure land practitioners i think it's likely that he would not do so today at least that's how i interpret what he was doing at the time because he believed that the various schools were following incorrect teachings the government was supporting those incorrect teachings which is why the land was in such a turmoil and so all of us in the this tradition are Raised to be activist to follow his example, and so it's you know when people talk about well, you know social justice or engaged Buddhism, it's part and parcel of how we're raised as Buddhists from the very beginning.
1: yeah, I was really struck by a story where you you said um you'd gone into prison, I think you'd gone into prison uh, with other sangha members you were three women of color yeah and you encountered this group of white male inmates and were they there to receive the dharma from you
0: they had invited us to come mm-hmm. and um so i mean specifically because we were anitran practitioners mm-hmm. and so we decided that we'd go in and um I think you had to have at least 10 people at that time to have an outside group uh, come in and support you so you could have meetings. And so they just packed it with whoever would come. And the majority were white supremacists. I'm not sure how many of them were actively really seeking the Dharma because sometimes it's just a good idea to have on your record that you go to some kind of religious service. Right. Um, But basically, except for a few that left initially because they couldn't have control over what was happening, um, every one of them was transformed along the way. Really? Yes. And it was quite astonishing. We started to get uh, all different kinds of people Because initially, you know, the black folk would would come down and just look at us like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, because we didn't know. We had no clue what kind of people these were because we didn't know their crimes or where they came from. Just that they were people who would come in for a meeting that we could share Dharma with. And if you saw the group now, it would just blow your mind because it's, Uh, an extremely well-mixed group, and and now we're in two different prisons, and uh, the groups are predominantly, uh, in one prison, it's predominantly Latino with uh, white and black practitioners, and the other, it's predominantly black with Latino and white practitioners uh, involved also. So the numbers are different at each one, but they're pretty well-mixed groups. Wow. And it's quite astonishing,
1: <laughs> prison tends to be a very segregated place, right. And what do you see happening between these men who come to chant the Daimoku? you know, like I'm assuming that's what you guys do
0: is: yeah, we chant we chant the Daimoku. we teach them how to chant the Lotus Sutra. Uh-huh. Um, we study with them developing a curriculum for them so they could be like lay leaders uh, behind bars. Um, I think what happened is my belief that so many of them did not encounter uh, thinking of themselves as respect-worthy or worthy of somebody even caring about them. And I hear that from so many uh, Just recently, one guy says to me that I'm like his mom, and who would have thought that he would come to prison and fall in love with someone, Mm -hmm. which I thought was quite remarkable. Um, And I think we have been extremely forthcoming and honest about everything. So when we're talking to them and they say, Well, you don't get this, Our, our lives here are horrible. And we can tell tell them, frankly, that it's just a matter of degree because people outside can tell you the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you made a cause to be here. This is your effect. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do you live the very best life you can in the midst of this effect? You know, And some of these guys are uh, those who have gone in at like teenagers and have life sentences, which is just unimaginable. And especially when you notice some of them are extremely bright. They have so much potential, but they're locked behind bars. But there's hope somehow. Uh, One of our guys who did have a life sentence got out. Mm. And he's living a life that for most people would just be you know, extraordinary because of how well he's doing and how well regarded he is. Because he really took the practice to heart and made his life uh, based on that practice. And he continues to do so. So that everybody who meets him is just like, wow, you're such a hard worker. Wow. You know, you keep your word. You're on time. You're very responsible. All of the things that most of us are trying to be anyway uh, but he was able to use his practice and bring his um, education about being a human being from age 16 up to where he is now. He was in for 26 years mm. and went in at 16. So who teaches him right from wrong in that environment? Who teaches him how to be a man in that environment? Not the kind of man that most of us would want to have around. Uh, So I've been really encouraged by the growth. Uh, We've confronted things such as um, sexual assault, uh, homosexuality, racism, you know, because sometimes uh, a white man will come in and say, you know, I'm the minority here, you know, and I don't have any privilege. And it's like, yeah, you do. (laughs) You still do. You still do. (laughs) Yes. Even though you're behind bars. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and it's, uh, you know, very timely and always, always uh, just very uh, precious, very tender that they're able and willing to speak to us in this way. I think they think of me as their mom most of the time, though. Wow.
1: What a wonderful thing in many ways. I don't
0: want to have that many boys. Yeah, Yeah, that's a lot of trouble. Uh, But but all of us call them our boys. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You've said, uh, as followers of the Lotus Sutra, it's our responsibility to hear the suffering of others and to help them as Shakyamuni Buddha has requested to find their way to enlightenment. Right and I'm wondering how that has just become part of your life, how it's become part of your mission um the The prison obviously is very uh clear, suffering is very clear um, but there's so many people suffering in the world
0: right. I find that I'm not conscious of it um. But people tell me all the time that I'm very serene and there's something about me that makes them feel safe. And I always figure that's a result of my practice. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know in the past, I probably wouldn't think that way. <laughs> um, and some people today I might not think that way about. Um, but I'm always conscious of the fact that everyone is suffering. Uh, And it doesn't matter who they are, even as I may be angry about what someone else is doing or, you know, what's happening with our government and all of that. uh, I find I cannot ignore the suffering. And that's the part that drives me the most. Um, Sometimes I have to turn off the news and stay away from social media just for a little while because I think it's important to always know what's going on. But there are days that if I looked at media too much, I'd be weeping all day long. And I'm always surprised sometimes, you know, not sometimes, all the time, what makes me cry? What just moves me to the point of, I have to do something. Because there's so much, especially, you know, with the children today, what's happening with the immigrant children. Mm -hmm. And then, Our own children, and then people who are living in their rage, it's like, what's wrong? What can we do? Uh, And that's what I've been thinking of lately. What can we do as Buddhists to help those people who are perpetrators? Mm -hmm. Because you know they have to be suffering in order to harm children, other people. You know, I mean, every day you hear uh, some person a privilege attacking people of color just for living. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what's wrong in your life that, that you have to go out and go after people who are just trying to live? And that's something I'm just, you know, chanting on, praying about, that maybe somehow that I can come into understanding enough so that I'm able to do something about it. I realize that all of that is based on separation, that people don't understand our interconnection, our interdependence, and they think that they can just get away with this stuff and it's fun and, you know, it's allowable now, but it really isn't. And everybody of common sense, I think, knows that it's not allowable. That we can't stand for this in our society. And I don't know what it's gonna take to help people remember what we have as a country, what we were built on, what we've been fighting for all these years.
1: Yeah, it feels like a sort of wanton ravishing. It's that the anger is so, or it's not even the anger, it's like the it's just the mean spiritedness of it all right just yeah. it's so shocking uh
0: the viciousness i i'm really yeah struggling so i think that people who don't acknowledge their need to be loved mm-hmm. and cared for mm-hmm. uh, have to blame other people who appear to be doing better mm-hmm. one of the things i have come to uh, understand is most communities of color tend to be more communally based Mm -hmm. and so we have that safety net Mm -hmm. in that community and I'm not sure that uh, white cultures have that Mm -hmm. Um, because the western culture is primarily individualistic and you know the privilege I have of interacting in, in Asian communities is I get to see what they're doing because they are communally based. And there's never a thought of not working for the good of all. And we don't have that in the West, at least in many communities that I know of. People are always thinking of me, 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 rather than ours. And somehow we have to find that part of it.
1: Yeah, there seems to be, and I say this as a, as a white person, um, A disposable nature in our culture, where Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, we replace people, and uh, I think some of this—that's cultural. I think some of it has to do with the wealth accumulation that's occurred.
0: Yeah, Uh,
1: you just—you don't want to work with that person anymore. You just hire somebody new, and they're not so much a person as much as a commodity. Mm-hmm. the the loss of the sense of interconnection, right, right. is has really impacted us in a, to our detriment, I think.
0: Well, I, I saw something very interesting on Quora the other day mm. that someone said they had quit their job and didn't tell anybody, and the boss was trying to get in touch with them. And the person who responded said, you know, it's because he cares. Mm-hmm. And went on to share a story about, you know, a person they had that quit. And they thought, well, the person's flaky, you know, so they weren't going to check upon her, but they did and found out that she had had a stroke mm. and had been laying there for days oh my God. with nobody paying attention. And so from that point on, People make it a point to do welfare checks on people that don't show up. Mm. And so it was someone who was woke enough to understand that we need each other. (laughs) We are connected and that we have to care. There is a drive towards, I think, having an enlarged group of people to whom you are connected. And I really believe that's why people seek out the Dharma because there's a space, it's a treasure, the sangha. That's our treasure. And without it, the rest of it isn't possible. We have to really work to take care of that particular treasure.
1: Well, I think it's quite um, indicative of the, you know, whether the style chose you or you chose it, Um, you participate in a style that's, dependent on other people i mean you can chant by yourself of course mm-hmm. but but it's very different experience when you're chanting with other people right and um how the you know how you come to understand the dharma uh is really impacted by the other people
0: chanting with you right right
1: it's a very communal
0: well, experience exactly and i think um I have seen over the years I've practiced that there's a concept we talk about called Itai Doshin, many in body, one in mind, uh, that uh, allows a group of people to get together and accomplish remarkable things. And um, we don't tend to think like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nichiren also went on to say something about those who are of, many embodied different in mind will accomplish nothing remarkable. Mm -hmm. And I tend to view that as all of us, not just Buddhists, but if all of us people of faith are gathered together in one mind to heal our world, to heal the connections that people have with each other, that we could do something remarkable. But even our religious communities are split apart as to which one is better You know, I think that some uh, of the issues that many of us are working on today is to try and bridge the gap between different kinds of Buddhism so that we can work together. Because we all have the same idea in terms of community and uh, interconnection and interdependence. And if we can do it, then we can find a way to share it with others.
1: When I think about... uh... Nature and practice. I actually, well, I think about faith mm-hmm. and um, and teaching through faith, and I'm wondering if you can say something about what that wor- what that word means to you.
0: Faith. Mm. Um, early on, faith meant expectation, in the sense that if I. Did this practice, something would happen in my life. And now, 50 odd years down the road, faith is the certainty I have that my life is on the right path. Um, that, as I know and believe, is how my life is. And I have the confidence through the years of experience to know that deep application of prayer and practice produces incredible results in my life. I've changed dramatically. And I know that most people never could imagine some of the things that I did when I was a young person growing up in the, uh, at the age of Aquarius or whatever you want to call the 60s, <laughs> 70s, you know, I did a lot of stuff just like everybody did at that time. And I've had people tell me, well, you wouldn't understand. It's like, well, yeah, I would. <laughs> you know, it's just I've moved past that now. I'm one of those old farts that can sit around and tell you what it was like and how we all had to change and why change is a good thing but uh, faith also lets me know that because i have this solid foundation in my practice that i can handle anything that comes my way and i've learned to have this deep sense of trust of myself and i think that's what all of us are trying to get to that we can know this will not break me this will not sway me this will help me become stronger and allow me to move forward. And faith is that change of your mind that says, everything that happens to me is for my benefit. And to operate and step out on the faith that that is correct, that that is a truth that you can uh, realize in your own life every day.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Myoke Kane Barrett encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her teaching by reading some of her articles and publications like Trinshu News, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, and Buddha Dharma. If you're interested in joining a service online, please email nbstx at myoken.com g dash usa dot org that's n b s t x at m y o k e n j i dash u s a dot org a special thanks to our sponsor the providence zen center if you would like to deepen your practice commitment i encourage you to explore pzc's residential and retreat opportunities you can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org videos. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.